0: We are wrapping up the book of James this week and next week. Um, so, a lot of times when I get to the end of a uh, sermon series, I like to give you the outline. And so, I started to work on the outline for James and quickly decided that it was going to be um, not helpful. Instead, we're going to start this morning by looking at the major themes of James. Because as we wrap up, and as you think about everything else that we've talked about, I want you to have these themes in your mind, and when you read through James, and I did this this week after I developed these, uh, these major themes, read through James and place them, connect each uh, cluster of verses, each idea back to the themes, and you'll see that James is not um, a disunity. He has a plan, and even though he writes different, uh, differently than a Westerner might, Um, He keeps cycling back and back. Uh, Before I begin, uh, I want to tell you that there's uh, somebody neat in the audience this morning, Newt Larson, sitting over here. And um, that's cool because 23, 24 years ago, I went to Cedarville as a freshman, and he was the first guy that I ever saw use imagery in a sermon. And now these people typically get 20 images or so a sermon from me. This one's light. You get like five. Um, But his was a transparency, remember those? Some of you kids, ask your parents later (laughs) what an an overhead is, an overhead projector. First thing I did when I found out that Newt Larson was here is I texted my two friends that I went to Cedarville with and I said, Newt Larson's in my audience this morning. And um, I asked them for tips and uh, one of them wrote back and said, make sure you say you're not sure if James is canonical. So I thought I would start with that. Just kidding. All right. I am sure James is canonical. Thanks. All right, maybe we got to get serious now. Here we go, because we got a lot to get through. Major themes of James. Uh, first, and it's where Kip began, faith sees the truth around us. We've talked about this almost every week, that the world is presenting us with one image of reality that we are being tempted to believe is true. But scripture, God tells us something different and faith are, are the eyes that let us see the truth around us. Second, faith with no actions is dead. A faith that produces no actions is not a faith that needs improved it is a faith that needs to be born third look to God for your good I'm not ready to decide and proclaim which major theme is the major theme but this is the one that keeps sinking into my heart throughout this series that I draw away from God when I look anywhere else for my good I make a mess of my life and the mess of the people's lives around me when I look anywhere else for my good. And finally, spiritual well-being trumps physical well-being. So those are the four major themes of James, and you can read through and psychically spec through if you don't have time to write them down or you don't have space. uh, My PowerPoint, um, hey, welcome to the living room, because Drew Etner is sitting over there. Cheers. It's just water. Um, uh, He can put my PowerPoint up along with my sermon notes that I'm actually sitting here uh, looking at this morning. So, if you don't have them, you can always get back there, uh, click on where we have the sermons in the the blog or in the website, and you can get this there. So, on top of these major themes, James at the end of chapter 1 gives us three litmus tests. Because he says, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be deluded regarding your faith. He wants us to know whether our faith is a faith that has actions and is genuine or not. And so he gives us three litmus tests. These are not the only litmus tests in the world, uh, but these are the three that James chooses. And the first is to look at what comes out of our mouths. What comes out of our mouths shows us what's in our hearts. And that's why it works as a litmus test, because we can't hide it, because we can't control our words. And so they tell us and they tell the people around us what's in our hearts, how we use God's resources. (sighs) Remember, uh, this week I jokingly said to someone, go be warm and well fed. He goes to the church, so he got it. When we can do that with our resources, when we see a brother or sister in need, and we say, hey, I'll pray for you, when we know that we could help with it right then in some way, um, how we use God's resources shows which God or gods we serve. Thirdly, how we tend to our holiness… Uh, Every morning you have, every afternoon, every evening, every moment throughout the day, you have the opportunity to tend to your holiness. And when we do, uh, we are going to grow closer to Christ. When we don't, we are going to slide away from Him. But how we tend our holiness, how much we uh, care for that, shows who we're listening to. Are we listening to our Father, the judge, the lawgiver of liberty, or are we listening to the world, the flesh, and the devil? So, those are our litmus tests as we move through James. Turn over now with me to James chapter 4. Chapter breaks, um, as was mentioned last week, are not inspired, versification isn't inspired. Um, and so, I think we see here a case where maybe we should have had a break at 13 because uh, 4.13 begins the same way that 51 does, and so they seem to be part of the same unit. 4.13, um, calling all fools. My imagery hits a really specific demographic. Uh, LAUGHTER Those of you who remember A-Team, calling all fools. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. These fools are those who think uh, that they can trust in themselves, in their reasoning, in their capacities, in their shrewdness and in their wisdom, in their capacity to make money and provide safety and security against the future. Uh, James is calling out to these fools who trust in their wealth. He says, you don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. You're going to plan a year out. You're going to plan 10 years out. You're going to make a 30-year career plan for yourself. And you're going to exclude Yahweh, the creator of heavens and earth, from that. You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. The second thing they don't know is the nature of their life, of their fragility, Our lives feel so stable and secure, don't they? Honestly, every morning I wake up and I feel very much in control of my day, my body, my life, what I do. James says, You're a mist. You're a vapor. Your life can vanish in a moment. He says, Instead, you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live. If God wills, we'll stay alive. And if that happens, we will do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. Anyone, then, who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. A lot of times we extract that verse out of its context, and we apply it in many ways, and that's kind of okay, because it is a general principle that applies to lots of things. But in this case, James is saying, once you understand that your life is a vapor, once you understand that your life is missed and that you can't control what happens tomorrow, you need to submit yourself to God's goodness, to his character. And if you choose not to do that, you're outside. That's sin. That excludes. Remember that James is writing to Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. Sin was something that kept them out of the temple, out of the presence of God. When we know the thing we ought to do, when we have the mirror, and those of you that are here this morning that were here when I last preached, you'll see that my shirt is properly buttoned. (laughs) And yes, I did that on purpose last time. If you don't know the joke right now, you can watch back. Chapter 5, he goes on, now listen, you rich people. And right there, some of us are like, wow, he's being kind of stepping on toes here. Well, by the way, like, we're probably all rich people here, so he's not pointing at anyone necessarily in our group. Um, and he's not even just really pointing at rich people. In the context, these rich people are those who he was just talking to. Come now. You who say, I'm going to go do, do this or that. So he's talking to those who are wealthy, who are excluding Yahweh from their plans, who have not submitted themselves to him. And so now we're learning about these people, and we are fast-forwarding. I hear frequently that my imagery, the older people don't understand it. So here's one for the 55-plus crowd. <laughs> uh, the youth won't understand. Later you can tell them who Peter Falk is, but it's Columbo, Right? Right. Does anyone? Yeah, thanks. See that hand? Um, so Columbo the, 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 is a mystery. He solves mysteries, murders, etc., And it always begins, or at least it, I haven't watched all of them, but it begins with showing you who did it and how they did it. And the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, well, they just ruined it. I now know. I'm ahead of the game. But that's not the point of this show. The point of the show is to figure out how he figures out how they did it and um, But this is what James is doing. He's moving us to the very end right now. Chapter 5, I would suggest we are standing at the great white throne judgment. We are standing at the end of days, and we are seeing those who he was just talking to, the rich who excluded God from their lives, from their planning. He is now showing them what their end is going to be like, And so, we get to see what the end is for those who act this way. Now, listen, you rich, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Gold and silver in our world here don't really corrode or rust. I mean, that's why they're so valuable, because they may tarnish a little bit, but they don't corrode in this sense. The New American Standard says your gold and silver have rusted. The point that James is making is there is coming a time when anything that we have placed our hope and our security in here is going to be exposed for what it really is. It is worthless for doing the job that we are hoping it's going to do. Look at what it says, their corrosion will testify against you, it's like the the worthlessness of the gold and silver itself is going to stand up when we're on trial and say, yeah, he trusted in me. And look at me, I'm worthless. It goes on. End of verse 3. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. We're in the last days right now, and these folks, as we are tempted to do, are hoarding wealth here rather than storing it up there. Look, verse 4. The wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. And so there's the second witness standing up to testify against them. They withheld money. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Um, if you have the uh, New American Standard, it says the Lord's Sabaoth, oath. And if you keep chasing that back, you'll see that that's the lord of armies. That's the god of war. So, these rich people who have entrusted their everlasting security to their wealth are now standing there being accused, and the the war god hears the accusations. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. And it may be that they had really done that, but it may also be that by withholding the, the, the due pay from the laborer, that he had no money to go buy his food. He did not have the money to buy his cloak. Maybe they took his cloak as a pledge of money even, as interest, and when they perish, that is on the rich. I don't know which James means. That's the future. Idolatry ends in despair. Wealth is not a stronghold. That phrase, um, you have fattened yourselves, in the uh, New American Standard, in the Greek, it says, you have, you have fattened your heart. You kept feeding your heart. You kept feeding your flesh in this day. I want you to, to note that because we're going to come back to it. But James is tying the end of his short note back into the beginning, chapter 1, verse 11. He says this the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom fails and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. James is calling out to us to not trust in our riches. verse 7. If you're reading this, if you're the original audience, and you you remember that he began the book by saying, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. And so, he's writing to people who um, are under oppression, most likely, um, if this is a result of the the scattering of the Jewish people, and now they are not only Jews who are being uh, hated, but they are being messianic Jews. Uh, They are in a very small group, and so they are most likely facing persecution, and James um, understands their question. Their question is probably something like, yeah, it's great to know that the bad guys are going to lose, but what about right now? What do I do here now? And I think James says to them, live with the end in mind. He's told us the end of these people who trust in something other than Yahweh, um, not to make us uh, say, ha-ha, you're going to get it, but so that we understand, don't be tempted to put your trust there. Don't look for security and hope here. Verse 7, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. There is coming a time when Jesus will literally break through the clouds and land in Jerusalem. And when he does, everything will be set right. You suffer now, but we won't suffer then. There is injustice now, but there will be no injustice then. Be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the early and late rains. Uh, We're building, I'm uh, I'm with a local builder here in town and we built recently a couple homes in the Mentone area for two farmers and I sat with them kind of as the houses were being wrapped up and I was asking about their crops because I'm totally ignorant about what's happening. I see them growing and um, they told me, well, here's where the crop status is right now and what we really need is this amount of rain, we need this amount of dryness, we need this, this amount of sunlight and what can they do to make that happen? They have to wait patiently and just trust that God is going to take care of things. Um, That's how we wait now. If you say, man, but things are really, really hard right now, and there's a lot of injustice, and there's a lot of uh, pain and suffering that ought not be, yeah, wait patiently because Jesus is coming back. Verse 8, you too be patient and stand firm. Uh, that, That phrase, stand firm, the reason I told you about fattening their hearts is because The uh, New American Standard and the Greek behind it are correct here, um, that it says um, establish your hearts or encourage your hearts. And so you have these, you have a question of what are you gonna do with your heart right now? Are you gonna fatten it? Are you gonna feed it the stuff that it really, really wants right now, makes you feel good? Or are you going to establish it in the Lord? And I'm reminded of uh, David when he was being hunted and it says he um, encouraged himself in the Lord. Um, and when he did that, we don't know exactly what that means. He probably wrote a song. Or maybe he sung some of the songs that he would written about Yahweh's steadfast faithfulness, his loving kindness to his people. In our case, we draw near. We remember what Christ has done on our behalf. We remember the end. We look forward to that Be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or si- brothers and sisters, or else you will be judged. Why does he put grumble right there against each other? Let me ask you a question, and I'm sure it's not you, but it's someone that you know. When someone that you know has hard things going on in their lives, what do they tend to do? Pastor Bruce knows. He says they grumble. Yeah, it's a pretty leading question, isn't it? But that's what we do. When things are hard, we tend to grumble. And in fact, it says don't grumble, ag- grumble against one another. Well, that makes no sense, right? Because like, why would I grumble against my brothers and sisters here at church when they aren't the ones who afflict me and they're not the ones who've made it wrong and they're not the ones who are going to make it right? It's because that's how broken and stupid we are is that when things get hard on us, we lash out and fight with people who have nothing to do with it. And James says, don't do that. Don't grumble against each other because the judge is here. He is standing at the door. So, it's been 2,000 years since James wrote this, and you wonder just how long does it take Jesus to get through the door? James was not saying he's walked down the hall and he's in a continuous motion and he's going to come right through the door. What James is saying, it's more like uh, there's a judge, the door of the courtroom is open, he's standing on the other side, you don't know when he's going to come in. But he's completely ready and proceedings will begin. The judge is standing right at the door. We need to keep the end in mind as we live here because judgment is coming. You may say, "Man, that's really really hard. I don't I don't how do we do that?" We can't we can't figure that out. It's too hard here. Well, he says, "I have an answer for you there too. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord." Think back, those of you who've sat through Sunday school for years and years and years, and think of those prophets how amazing it must have been when isaiah is standing there and one day god appears to him now maybe not i don't know how he appeared maybe grabs control of his mind and but shows him great visions and says hey i'm calling you and god says and i'm going to give you the words to say and i'm going to empower you to do mighty works and send you out don't you want to be that guy we all want to be that guy. We want God to tap on our shoulder and say, hey, I've got something for you. Go do this. Here my Well, I've got news for you. You have been given those words. You know those words if you've known Jesus for any length of time. And how were the prophets received? Oh, thank you, Isaiah, for coming and preaching the truth to us. Oh, Reformation in Israel. No, it just like never happened that way. There was like one prophet who ever got a positive response. Here they were, the mouthpieces of God, and the people didn't want any of it. In some cases, they were persecuted, in some cases, they were just ignored, in other cases, they were executed. Take that as your example. And it says, we considered them blessed, verse 11. Once the prophet was dead and gone and a generation had passed, everyone considered him blessed, even if he was hated, because then it was revealed that yeah, he really was a mouthpiece of God. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. We don't have time to go through the book of Job, although I'm willing to if you want to stay. (laughs) Let me summarize it this way Job was a righteous man who was afflicted by Satan. God let him hurt Job, kill his children, take away his wealth, afflict his body. Job started out his suffering well, and then he spiraled. And he made accusations against God and how God didn't know the truth, how God was an unjust judge. And then he met Yahweh. God showed up and talked to him and described himself to him. And then Job said, behold, I am insignificant. How can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth once I've spoken, and I will not answer even twice, and I won't add any more, and God keeps beating on him lovingly, unveiling himself, reminding him who he is, and the end of Job is like this, I know you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, things I did not know. Hear, hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. He repented of his foolish accusations of the creator God, and God restored him and blessed him. He was full of compassion and mercy." What's the application? Verse 12 is the application. This is another one of those verses that I think we've torn out of context and we've made it about things that it's not about. James is saying, by the time we get to this point, are you going to follow Yahweh or not? And so... He says this, "'Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned.'" Swearing, in this case, is not profanity. It's saying, um, by the Lord Almighty or by the temple, I will do such and such. As the Lord lives, I will follow Him. And James is saying, we don't need lots of words. We don't need you to make lots of promises. What God wants is for your yes to mean yes. Are you going to follow Him? If you're going to say yes, then just do it, or else you're going to be condemned. James is not saying, hey, choose to either follow God or don't follow God, and either one's good. What he's saying is choose to follow God or understand that you're not. There is no middle. There is no promising and not doing. If you promise and don't do, you're condemned. All of James is written. Okay, let me back up. Most of James is written. James's main point is to help us see whether or not we are deluded about our faith. Back there, right before he gives the litmus test, he says, hey, do you want to know if your faith is real? Look at your mouth, look at your money, look at your holiness. James is written so that we will be able to determine if we have the sort of faith that saves. I want to read to you a little bit here um, stuff that I wrote that... um, I'd rather read it than try to say it to you and get it wrong, because I like what I wrote. James is not saying, oh, let me, James is not a Christian self-help book. James is not trying to get you to use your money better or to use your words better or to be better at your holiness. That's not what James is about. James is about, do you have a faith that saves? James is not saying that you should do a better job of controlling your tongue. In fact, he says, you can't control your tongue. If anyone controls, Mary says, if anyone controls his tongue, then he is perfect in everything he does. Is there anyone who is perfect in everything he does? Shake your head this way. No? There's not. I mean, Jesus, yeah, but that's not who James is talking about. So you can't control your tongue. So if you are spewing blessing, you're good you're okay. That's that's a good result of that litmus test because it means that there is good that is welling up in your heart. If you're spewing curses, you're in trouble because it indicates that your heart is evil. If your heart is evil, submit to God and draw near to Him. Don't get a better handle on your tongue. James is not saying that you should do better at helping people in financial trouble or giving to Compassion International or tithing at your church. Stepping higher on the generosity ladder, he is saying if you are pursuing wealth so that you can use it on yourself while brothers and sisters in the faith are starving and freezing to death, while children are uncared for, if you trample and exploit people to gain wealth and security for yourself, Then you have devoted your life to several false gods, and the faith you profess is hollow. You will find yourself excluded from our Heavenly Father at the end of days. James is not saying that we should increase our prayer time or do extra devotionals, but rather holiness is not about looking good on the outside, but about submitting to Yahweh the Creator and the source of wisdom That in drawing close to him, we will necessarily withdraw from the offerings of the world, of our culture. We will withdraw from the worshipful gratification of our fleshly impulses and from the false wisdom of the father of lies. We do not try harder at a list, but believe the words of Yahweh and build our daily and moment-by-moment responses around his revealed character. Patiently wait on his resolution to every wrong we endure. That's the message of James. James is a seeker, insensitive sermon for lifetime churchgoers. He was writing to Jews who had only been Jews for 1,500 years, generation after generation after generation. And I think there's a high correlation between that audience who knew Yahweh forever, who were taught from little, uh, from little children up through uh, the gray hair about Yahweh and what He had done to those of us who have grown up in the church, who've been in the church 10, 15, 20, 50, 60, 80, 90 years, we've listened to thousands of sermons, and we've nodded, Mm -hmm. and we've taken notes, and we've said how much that sermon blessed us. James wants to know, what does a litmus test show about your life? He does not want to know your doctrinal statement. I want to take a moment and give you about a minute to reflect, but I want you right now, and I've been doing it all week, so I'm not pointing my finger at you, dip your life in the litmus tests. Bow your head. We'll take a minute. I will um, tell you, Jesse DeLoe said, and I didn't ask him if I could share it, so I bet I can. At speaking team, he said, our natural response when we hear a sermon like this is to say, I need to do better. If you're feeling in your heart right now, I need to do better, you've missed the point. Um, right now, and I forgot to do this at the beginning, but with our overseers, their spouses, and our Um, discipleship counseling members, would you raise your hands, please? Raise them up high. If you are, keep them up, if you are this morning saying, I dipped my life in the litmus test, and yeah, I'm a member here, and I've gone to church since I was 10, but I am not liking what I'm finding, these people are ready to talk to you. Uh, and I'm ready to talk to you. So I'm going to encourage you to go to them. Gonna, you can put them down. And then uh, I'm going to encourage you. They're gonna, I want you guys to stay where you're at. I don't care if you lead an ABF and you've got to go. Stay where you're at for a little minute. And if you need to talk to someone, do that. If you're sitting here saying, man, I'm not going to talk to anyone right now, but I know my life is messed up. Will you right now take out your phone and text a dear friend of yours? People will just think you're checking something on the internet, you're checking Facebook. No one's gonna know, but text your, text your prayer partner, someone in your life group, someone in your ABF, and say, ah, we gotta talk about the litmus test. You can put your name on any piece of paper you find in the church, in your phone number, and drop it in any of the offering slots around the church, and someone will get back in touch with you. There's a phone number on the church. You can call it. Leave a voicemail. Say, uh, yeah, I need to talk about the litmus test. If your faith is solid, then Bruce is going to talk to you next week, because that's the rest of the conclusion. I've had, I've had the hard part. Bruce gets the fun part, anointings, he always gets the easy sermons. <laughs> we have him talk about sex and marriage and money, he gets the easy stuff. Don't leave without connecting with someone because what's gonna happen is you're gonna go out the door, you're gonna go to ABF, you're gonna go home and things are gonna continue. Live with the end in mind. Make a decision right now with the end in mind. Let me bless you. Father, I pray that you would bless WLGBC. I pray that you'd bless those who are watching maybe from different churches on the internet later. I pray that you would move us to to be willing to dip our lives in that litmus test, those litmus tests, and see what it reveals and then to take action based on it pray that you would stir revival in our American churches where we have grown comfortable in our doctrinal statements, in our wealth. I pray that you would move in us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.